Earlier today I saw um, President Obama's uh, reflection for the week and it was around um, September 11th. This is the ninth year anniversary of September 11th and he was taking the occasion to um, honor what happened, to pay tribute to the people who died, to pay, uh, acknowledge the families and friends who'd lost loved ones and the kind of things that happen in life, you know, the birthdays and the celebrations and the weddings and the empty seats when a family member dies. You know, he honored the, the people who lost their lives trying to help the firefighters and the first response people. And, uh, and then went on to, to use the occasion or the, the time to, to help people remember that it wasn't the, the pain of, the, of that incident that was really magnificent, but the kind of unification of purpose and the solidarity of the country to coming together in support of common values that really was uh, noble and worthy and worth remembering. And um, I thought the talk was excellent in the sense that I think he, he does a good job of, of using um, his power in order to help reflect on values and help align the country in a way that moves us in, towards the possibility of attending to some of the difficulties that we have and staying clear about priorities. And he did that very beautifully. But one of the things which is interesting to me is a contemplative is just the whole nature of perception. You know, nine years ago, September 11th was the same as September 1st or September 2nd or December 1st or December 2nd. There was no perception in our mind about September 11th as being anything different than any other day of the year. And then all of a sudden there was an event that happened that had a tremendous impact on our psyche. And now, probably for the rest of our lives, September 11th is indelibly inked as having a whole huge range of significances in terms of the change of perception in our country and our sense of our own fragility, which, you know, I think one of the things that happened with that event was this country, for the first time in its history, had to deal with the fact that it's not fallible and that things um, can go terribly wrong and that... uh, you know, uh, and as a result, there can be a lot of people who die. And, uh, you know, it was the first kind of invasion from people outside, uh, the first time we'd experienced that. So, you know, having spent the last 20 years in Britain, where they've been having wars and, and territory skirmishes and things like that for the last, I don't know, 3,000 years, you know, that even though it hasn't happened recently, that sense of infallibility is held very much within the, doesn't exist. There's a deep knowledge of how quickly things can change and how devastating it can be. And, you know, they are people who have lived through, you know, World War II and the bombings there and, you know, have that as a memory 
and you know the land is marked with places where the bombs dropped and uh, you know there's war memorials everywhere in every town and every village and every everything you know there were war memorials of people from that town and village whose lives were lost in the different wars and so you know our culture has come out of this kind of unusual history in contrast with different countries about not having experienced that firsthand and as a result there can be an overconfidence and a kind of inflation that um, then tends to color our view about our own safety and what's possible in the world and so when something like September 11th happens it pierces the bubble and that bubble then you know then reformulates itself around a new perception and that new perception then and you know the the government uh, at that time was capitalizing on using fear in order to justify its own policies and then use that incident in order to help rationalize stuff that just didn't make any sense at all but the perception of you know fear or terror or terrorists or all the rest of that got indelibly embedded in the September 11th experience and then that fear was co-opted for political aims which then had a huge effect on the culture and the society and we've got policies we've got you know I've been trying to get my a, a Colorado ID and this is now going on six months and you know um I don't know how many trips I've made to this office and that office and have to send things in. And, and while I've been through this process, they changed the law, and now I have to do it over again or a part of it over again because the law is different and they won't accept the thing that I did before. And part of this is the direct result of September 11th and the a sense that when you've got terrorists, you've got to take extra care and you've got to make sure that anybody who's living in this country is really has a valid reason for being here and that their identity is exist. You know, their identity is can be substantiated. And so, you know, there's the way our emotions perceive it. There are structural things that have changed in our government. There's different kinds of bureaucratic tangles that exist. There's all kinds of implications that have been set into effect as a result of this change in perception. But as Buddhists, it's really important to reflect on perception as perception. You know, to understand perception is perception. You know, that we see things and we perceive things, we feel things, we have feeling about things, and then we have an idea about what it is. And all of this is changeable. All of this is not ultimately real. It doesn't have any intrinsic existence. Ultimately, everything changes. And there's nothing inherently satisfying or unsatisfying about the, the characteristics itself. It's the way we're relating to it. So when we grasp onto our perceptions and we hope that that's the thing that's going to give us some ground or some stability, and we realize that our perceptions ourselves change, then we realize that we're in a kind of groundless territory. And so a lot of the time our lives is spent on grabbing onto things that we're hoping is going to give us some stability. We recognize that the faster we grab, the more things are turning into straw and not able to support or sustain our weight or our longing to find stability in a world which is constantly changing and which is inherently not able to satisfy. And so, you know, 
Um, it's not as if I don't appreciate President Obama's taking this opportunity in order to consolidate his aspiration to bring people towards a unification of purpose. I think it's a skillful way of using the day and the power and the position and the remembrance. But as contemplatives, we can take this several steps deeper and look at the whole nature of perception itself and how it gets activated and what happens when we are we are we are with a perception. You know, September 11th is an idea that arises in our mind in the present moment. And with it, there can be memories, there can be associations, there can be, you know, a sense of what it meant or the pictures that you saw on the television or in the newspaper or the facts that come with it or the kind of, you know, the the fear that is associated with it or the conspiracy theories that have been reported to be related to it. But what we are dealing with is a perception. That's what it is. It's a perception, and a perception arises in the mind in the present moment, is known for what it is, and then ceases. And if we don't understand perception, then it's really difficult to have a sense of being able to navigate in our lives with any sense of freedom because we're constantly moving towards the perceptions that please us and trying to dispel or fight or get rid of the perceptions that don't please us. But what we're dealing with is perception. And perception, by its nature, arises when the conditions are right for it to arise. It stays for a while. And when the conditions are no longer right, then it changes. So September 11th is now indelibly inked in our society you know, in the culture that has lived since that time. And probably for the rest of our lives, it's not going to shift. But we can know it as something that arises in the present moment. And then even in the present moment, we can watch how it shifts and changes and then disbands. So September 11th doesn't have a fixed entity, inherent separate entity. It comes when we have certain kinds of memories or associations related to it. It lasts for a while, and then it will disband. So the joy, the joy, the challenge, the work of a contemplative is to understand the nature of perception so that we're not getting stuck or caught out or chasing our tail around perception. You know, that we're not moving towards this fantasy that if we have the right perceptions, we'll be okay, and if we get rid of the wrong perceptions, we'll also be okay. There's a fundamental appreciation that perception is perception and that it's not inherently going to be the thing that's going to do it for us. So when we have that kind of understanding and we have that kind of appreciation, then it gives us the willingness or the opportunity to check out, well, all right, if perception isn't where it is, where is it? You know, Where do we let our attention rest if we're not going to be able to invest in our perceptions as to be the thing that's going to actually save the day? So we have Prajnaparamita here. We have Buddha here. We have Kuan Yin here. And each of them in their own way are symbolic representations of a place where attention can rest that saves the day. You know, Saprajnaparamita is the mother of all the Buddhas. She's the place where everything arises from. She's what's left when everything falls away. It's this absolute emptiness, which is not a state of annihilation where nothing exists. It's the appreciation or the deep, profound realization that everything is in flux and changes 
And there isn't anything inherently stable in anything, in anywhere, in any person, in any structure, in any idea, in any aspect of our body. And so when we really begin to open up to that and touch into that, then what Prajnaparamita symbolizes is where we rest. You know, the Buddha symbolizes the truth of awakening, that which knows, that quality of awareness which is able to see and know things. So what knows a perception is not colored by their perception. What knows September 11th isn't September 11th. It isn't the fear, it isn't the anxiety, it isn't the memories, it isn't the associations, it isn't the sentimentality or the grief or the anxiety about what happens to this country. It's something that is untainted by all of those things. Kuan Yin is the embodiment of love, of loving kindness, a kind of loving kindness that doesn't have any strings attached and isn't conditioned. You know, for me, there's a real natural connection between emptiness and loving kindness. The more there's the realization of the un, um, the instable qualities of life, and the more there's a natural empathy for uh, kind of the, the 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 human connectedness, the life energy that flows through all of us. That that we're not separate. We share this all. We share this human predicament. So on August 29th, I was in a bhikkhuni ordination, which was a rather big surprise. It was not something I was expecting before I went. And all of a sudden, you know, there's something that shifted. So what's shifted? I went through a ceremony. The ceremony allows me to have different precepts, and all of a sudden things feel completely different. Well, I'm now connected to a whole group of people that I wasn't connected to before I went through this ordination. And as a result of having this connection and affinity, I have access to different resources, and I have invitations to go and stay in places, and I have people who are interested in coming and training here. But it's a perception. The perception has changed. So on a condition level, you can make sense or make a lot out of the kind of you know, the, the titles that we get or the promotions that we get or the shifts that we have. You know, but when we reflect on it, what's changed? What's different? So for just shy of 20 years, I was a Sila Dara. So next year will be the 20th anniversary of having taken the Papaja or the, or the ordination where I'm an alms mendicant. Next year will be the first anniversary of being a bhikkhuni. So am I a Mahateri or am I a brand new bhikkhuni? Am I an elder of 20 years or am I a baby, brand new, fully ordained nun? These are perceptions. And in this situation, both are going to be accurate. So, you know, how we conceive of ourselves and how we conceive of other people and the way that we relate to our conceptions and our perceptions has a huge effect on ourself. You know, yesterday I was down in Denver and I was talking with different groups of people. And the first group of people that I talked with was the Indus entrepreneurs. They're called Thai Rockies. And they're a group of business people who meet together to support each other. And my brother is part of that group, and he really wanted me to connect up with them because he thought that it would be really positive both ways. 
So, to my amazement, they're actually really excited about all of this. You know, I thought that they would take a very superficial kind of take on on this and just, you know, think, oh, it's nice for a little bit of relaxation and let's get on with business. But they get it, that actually when you have the spiritual component of one's life together, then everything else follows. And when you don't have it together, then it doesn't matter how good everything else is. There's no sense of ease and well-being. So people, some of them, who have no kind of spiritual backgrounds or history or meditation experience, you know, they picked it up real quick, and they're really excited. And so in the course of the conversation, we're talking about a number of different things. The conversation was around stress. And one of the people who was there, the person hosting the event, was talking about how, you know, he comes from Pakistan. And in Pakistan, you know, you have so many different relationships, and they're all very similar. But he noticed that, or on a similar level, he noticed that in this country you come, he comes to this country, and your primary partner is like up here, and a hundred feet down is where everybody else is located. So, you know, there's your primary person, and then there's absolutely no correlation whatsoever between that person and the next person. They're on a totally different scale. And so one's emotional nourishment and one's a focus of attention and one's uh, identity and one's sense of belonging is related entirely through that one person. And so if there's difficulties with that one person, it's really unsettling. But when you've got a field of like eight or ten, you've got a lot of more complexity to navigate. But if you've got one person that you're having a hard time with, you've got seven others that you can figure it out, the nourishment or the support or the whatever to deal with. And then I went from that group to Denver punks, the Dhamma punks. And the topic for the Denver Dhamma punks was love, sex, and awakening. And it's like, you know, this is really exciting stuff. I mean, I don't think it's just the 20 and 30 group who are finding this a topic of relevance. But they came in in uh, numbers. And it's the perception. Are you in relationship or not in relationship? How are you dealing with relationship? What it means for you? How do you deal with all the stuff that comes up with it? And it's really agonizing for people if they're not in relationship or they want to be in relationship. You know, there's a sense that all of the emotional needs that they are hoping to have fulfilled will happen through this thing that isn't present. And then one person was saying, you know, that he's been married for 16 years and that, you know, this one person, you know, if they say something nice, it's like just over the moon. And if they say something not nice, it's just totally devastating. And it's like, you know, the one person has such an enormous effect on one's system, positive or negative. And how do you, how do you balance it out? So how do you shift the perception? How do you change the perception? You know, how do you find some balance and neutrality with what is actually arising in relationship to the perception of my relationship with my primary partner? Now, obviously, in this kind of a situation, isn't only simply a question of perception. It's a question of renegotiating emotional relationships where the nourishment is coming from other places, valuing that, taking responsibility for one's own... Um, emotions that arise in relationship to what gets triggered or what gets where things land. But a lot of it has to do with perception of the way we view relationship and what we invest as a result of that. And certainly it's conditioned by our culture and what we've been taught, what we are trained to believe. And so as a contemplative, we're in a position to be able to contemplate all of this stuff and to begin to see, well, what actually works for us, what doesn't work for us, and where do we want to put our energy and what do we want to choose, and how do we want to live. 
And so part of that is structuring our lives in a way which is congruent with our values, that we're doing things that work and not doing things that don't work. But part of that also is beginning to contemplate, you know, what's the nature of perception? Forget what the perception is about. You know, how does perception actually affect us? Where are we invested in it? Where are we attached? How are we believing these things to be true? Or who we are? Or what we have to fight for? Or what we have to get rid of? Gwen and I pick up different books. And the book that we picked up this morning was about Deepama. Deepama was a Bengali woman who was born in in Chittagong in uh, East Bengal. And... Uh, you know, as was the custom of the time, she was married off when she was 12. And uh, one week after she was married, her husband accepted a job to go to Burma. And she was living with her in-laws, who she didn't like very well and was a little bit frightened of. They were very demanding. And then at the ripe old age of 14, she was shipped off to Burma to live with her husband, who she'd known for a week. And, you know, in her upbringing as a child... You know, they taught her how to be a good housewife in terms of how to cook and how to clean and how to take care. But nobody ever told her anything about what marriage and sexuality entailed. And so her husband explained it to her, and she was absolutely horrified, you know. And so she lived in terror of him, you know. It was like just unfathomable. And, you know, her life unfolded, and he was a very kind and very noble-hearted man, and you know, was very gentle with her, and they fell in love, and they were very happy together, but she couldn't conceive a child, which in India is like not just a bad thing, it's like an absolute catastrophe. So his family plotted to have him marry another woman so that he could have a child. So they got him to go home on false pretenses and had an arranged marriage set up for him to be ushered into a new marriage immediately so that he could abandon Deepama and off they would go and he put his foot down and he said no way you know I didn't marry her for her capacity to bear children and so I'm not going to leave her for her inability to have children so after 20 years of married life she finally conceived a child she was absolutely delighted and the child died she was devastated and she conceived another child, and Deepa was born, and then she got the name Deepa Ma. And then she conceived another child, a boy child, and that child also died. And then her health went into a terrible spiral downward. So her husband was looking after her and looking after the brand new children and taking care of work, and his health collapsed, and he died suddenly. So in a ten-year period of time, she lost two children. She lost her husband. She lost her health. And it's like, you know, what was left? Well, she was not an ordinary person in the sense that she had a really profound appreciation for the importance of meditation, and she'd been asking to meditate for, for since she got married from the very beginning. And, you know, her husband kept on saying, no, it's not the right time. So when it's like she was completely sick, you know, she'd lost everything, and then she didn't have a sense of that there was any other possible way of finding any nourishment in this world. It was like at that point she went to meditate and her practice went very deep very, very quickly. 
and she went from being a kind of very sickly, very dependent, very unhappy person to being incredibly peaceful, very radiant, and very confident. So when there's deep understanding in meditation, what happens is one's relationship with perception changes. The perception itself doesn't change, but the relationship with perception changes. One no longer gets confused by perception. It arises, one knows it, and it ceases. And there isn't confusion about that. One isn't looking for happy perceptions and trying to get rid of unhappy perceptions. One sees perception as perception. So, you know, we have this occasion. Today is September 11th. We had a beautiful reflection from our president about the meaning of the day and what this has meant for us as a people, as a country, and how that can solidify us around values that support us in our aspiration together as a nation to grow in health. But as contemplatives, we have another opportunity to use this day to see what the nature of perception actually is. And I was um, going through Thailand the first time I was in Thailand. I was in Ajahn Bhattirasa's monastery. And um, unusual for a forest monastery, he had a whole art gallery of expressions of art that were Dhamma-related. And one of the pieces of art that really um, captured my attention and my imagination was a, a picture of, a, of Potai, the monk with a big fat belly. And he had his hands just up in the air, and there was this expression of ecstasy on his face. And the caption underneath was, Oh, what joy to discover there is no happiness in this world. <laughs> he understood perception. So I leave this as reflection for tonight, and invite us to come back after tea and share what needs to be talked about. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.